But before we hear from God's word, let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness to speak to us and in your generosity to have your word recorded in this book. So help us come to it, not merely as ink on a page, but what it is, your living and active word. Help our souls, our hearts, everything that we are, take a posture of humility beneath it, that we would hear its truths. This text is, is so liberating if we would hear it. And we know we need the Spirit to come and do that, to be able to hear it rightly. We can understand the words. We can get the gist of what it's saying. But we can't believe it apart from your gracious intervention. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and break through whatever ways we might resist this text, whatever ways we might um, not let it lay hold of us and comfort us. Above all things, what we ask, Holy Spirit, is it's the thing that every single person in this need needs most, whether they are, are not a Christian, whether this is their first Sunday, whether they've never been in a church before, whether they've been walking with Christ for 42 years, whether they've been gone um, from, from the faith and they're just wandering back, whether they got drug here, God, whatever reason, however we got here and whatever our background, what every single person needs most is to leave this time more impressed with Jesus, more confident and in what he's done and more full of hope with what he promises to do when he returns. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and lift him high in our songs, our prayers, our conversations, during communion, and in this sermon, that our hearts might be drawn after him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Look at Luke chapter 1, and I read a long section from verse 56 through the end of the chapter. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came upon all their neighbors and all these things were talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our fathers Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, 
to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Feel free to grab a seat. So in my boy band days, um, I was in a boy band in high school, no biggie. Um, I was the songwriter, so I wrote all the songs, 16-year-old, and, and as most boy band songs go, it's about romance and dating and, you know, fill in the blank stuff, right? And, and, and so I was writing all these songs about things that I had never actually experienced, not a single one. I didn't have a girlfriend. Um, and uh, so I'm writing all these songs about falling in love and all this, and, and they, they were really bad songs. All of them were, were absolutely terrible songs. And I praise the Lord every single day that the internet did not exist, that iPhones did not exist. You cannot find the songs. You can't find the music video. We made a music video. You can't find it. You can't find the music video where we're wearing coordinated linen outfits and all bedazzled up with fake jewelry. You can't find it. You can't find the video where we walked in linen outfits and stood by fancy cars that didn't belong to us but pretended that they did because we didn't have the budget to actually rent those cars. You can't find it. So praise God for that little grace of no iPhones or the internet. But they weren't good songs because they didn't come from a real place. It wasn't something I'd experienced. And so I was trying to talk about something that I really didn't know about. Good songs come from real places. They come from real longings, real hurts, real desires, real hopes, real joys. It's true of songs. It's true of of the poem, um, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. The backstory of that song really deepens the lyrics. On July 9th, 1861, Henry woke from a nap. He woke from a nap to the screams and shouts of his wife. His wife's dress had caught fire, and so he woke up, and he grabbed a rug, and he tried to put the fire out, and it didn't work, and so he used his own body to try to put the fire out, but he was too late, and she was so severely burned that she passed away the next day. Longfellow was also so, burnt, so injured that he couldn't attend his wife's funeral, and if you've, I think we might have a picture of him. Do we have a picture so when I think of him, this is, this is the image I have from high school English. Like, this is what I remember, this, this big beard. He began to grow the beard after this fire because he was so burned. So he just began to grow this giant beard. He was so stricken with grief during this time that he was worried that he would be put in an asylum. He's now the widowed father of six children. One of his children had passed away um, as an infant. Two years after Fanny passed away, March 1863, his oldest son Charles joined the Union Army to to fight in the Civil War. Within a month or so of joining the Army, he got deathly ill with what was known as camp fever. Um, They're not sure exactly what that is, but but very life-threatening. He was sent home to try to recover. It took months and months and months. And then finally, he was able to rejoin his, his unit November 20, uh, in, the, in the fall of 1863. November 27th, 1863, during the Battle of the Mine Run campaign, he was shot. So the news was sent to his father. Your son was shot. Um, and what they told him was actually, it, was, it wasn't the right information that they told him, but this is what his, his father heard. He said, your son was shot in the face and he's going to die. You need to get to the hospital. And so he travels down to Washington, D.C. as fast as he can. He gets there a few days later, uh, 5th of December or so. 
and he finds out his son was not shot in the face. He was shot through the arm, and, and, and miraculously, as the bullet traveled through, it nicked part of his, his spine, but he wasn't immediately paralyzed. But what the surgeon told him, he said, um, your son may still um, be paralyzed. If he does make it, it's going to take months and months of recovery, and we're not sure he ever will. Take those two snapshots, those two in light of the language of uh, Zachariah's song that he sings, these shadows of death, these shadows that settle in. I'm sure there's more in his life than that, but bring them into now December 25th, 1863, just a few years after his wife had passed away horrifically, as he's not sure his son is in a hospital, not sure if he's ever going to get out, Christmas Day, and that's when he wrote this song. And what he was trying to do is to capture this dissonance that he felt between the hope that Christmas promises and the peace that Christmas proclaims and the turmoil and the ache and the hurt and the wounds that he was experiencing in his own life. Custom at this time is the churches and their belfries, their towers, they'd have bells. And on Christmas Day, they would ring those bells and it would ring out throughout towns and cities as a declaration. And he was hearing these bells ring and he began to hear a choir sing this song of the angels, the song that comes in the next chapter of Luke, this declaration that Christ is born. They say, the glory to God on highest and on earth, peace. Peace, peace on earth. In the midst of the Civil War, a son that may not recover, a wife that was lost, and that's when he penned his poem. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how as the day has come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then he takes a turn. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. His poem has a no number of other lines in them. Some of them talk about the, these cannons thundering, and, and the, 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 the breaking the... Silence, shattering the peace. It's a stunning poem. It became very quickly a really, really stunning song. It was written from a real place where peace is, is proclaimed, where, where in the light of peace being promised, but where it can't be found. And to understand how good Zechariah's song is, you have to know that it comes from a very real place. If you look back, we, we looked at this a few weeks ago, but back in verses 5 and and seven, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, and he had a wife named Elizabeth. And the days of Herod is this, this phrase that may not mean a lot to us, but Herod was a horrendous, horrendous king. He was violent. He was wicked. He, he abused his power. And he was set up by uh, the Romans who were occupying Israel. And so they're, they're already a captured people, already an occupied people with, with, a, with a king that's been raised up, which is a terrible leader who created so much trauma. That's the context of the song. And then you go down to verse 7, and we get this little note. Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth were both faithful to God. They were upright. They're walking in his ways. And yet Elizabeth was barren. 
She's well advanced in years. They've never had a kid. And, 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 and so this, this real hurt, this real sadness. You know, we see, we see it in the need. We see this need, this, this darkness and why the Lord needed to visit his people over in verse 67 as it talks about him visiting to do what? To redeem his people. But why? Because they were occupied, because they were, they were captured. Why? Because they knew they were sinners in need of a savior and they needed emancipation. Because they had promises given by God that were not yet fulfilled. Because verse 79, they were people in darkness and in the shadow of, of death. Now, we don't suffer under the same Herod, but we do suffer under Herod's. There's always Herod's. There's always false leaders and corrupt leaders and policymakers that make decisions that have very real impact to, to harm and to hurt. And we may not have, we, some of us may have experienced the same barrenness that Elizabeth and Zechariah did. And if you have, that is an ache that is hard to explain to anybody that has it. But even if you don't, you have other areas of barrenness, other, other wants and longings that haven't been met, good longings, Christ-honoring longings. Or you have the, the threat that the good things will be taken away. C.S. Lewis calls this world the Shadowlands. It's not what it's supposed to be exactly. It's, it's not what will be here. There's many good things. There's so many good things. But those good things, well, the cannonballs come and they shatter the peace. And it's easy to do what Longfellow did, to, to bow your head in despair. Yet it's not the final word. Advent, this season of remembering that Christ has come and Christ is coming again, is this reminder. It's this reminder. It's, it's, it's this wake-up call. Zechariah's song is a wake-up call to see anew what God has done and promises to do. That we could find as this text ends, this way of, of peace. Even here in the shadows. That word peace is such a rich word. Let me give you a a definition of it from Cornelius Planina. Um, the webbing together of God, humans in creation, all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace. But it means far more than mere peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. That's what we long for. That's what we long for. And Advent reminds us that there's good things, but it's not quite the way it's supposed to be because we're still waiting for Christ to come back and set it all right. We'll get to why the name of this baby boy caused such a scene and why it matters so much, but all the names in this passage really matter. They all tell us something about God. Zechariah's name means the Lord remembers. Elizabeth's name means God is my oath, or God keeps his promises. Zechariah and Elizabeth are reminders, as we live in shadows, as we wait, as cannonballs shatter peace, as cancer diagnoses show up, as financial struggles ensue, as relational strife begins, as loneliness sets in, and on and on, God remembers God keeps his promises. David Pallison makes what I think is a really um, 
hopeful claim. He says, there's basically two ways of doing life. Or we could say two ways of living in the shadowlands. One is with God, who is involved in your lives. There's a God who remembers, a God who is here, a God who cares. And then the other way is you're pretty much on your own. And to illustrate this, he, he does this really interesting thing. He takes Psalm 23, which if you, you've been in the church uh, for a while, it might be a very beloved song t- to you. Um, and he does an anti-psalm of it. So let me read Psalm 23, just the first four verses, and then his anti-psalm, the reverse, if it wasn't true. This is doing life with one who's, that if God is actually involved. Psalm 23, one and following, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And what that means is, I shall lack for nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. What else do I need? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, deep darkness and shadow, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then look at the the contrast. Here's anti-Psalm 23. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths, but life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurts and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm all alone facing everything that could hurt me. As one author put it, this anti-psalm is what it feels like when God vanishes from sight. It would have been so easy for God to have vanished from sight from his people. They've been waiting hundreds, thousands of years. I mean, they've been waiting for God to, to, to deliver on his promises. It would have been so easy at a national level with Herod. It would have been so easy for Elizabeth and Zechariah at a very personal level in their own life with, with, with barrenness. Here's one of the many gifts of Advent to remind us that we aren't pretty much on our own. But that God's so involved, he came down. See, that's how Zechariah's song, he says, blessed be the Lord who has visited his people. As he said he would do, he promised it. His text, as uh, verse uh, 79 says, to give light to those who sit in darkness, which is another one of his, his promises that, that whatever it feels like, whether you're in, in the noonday sun right now in your life or whether it just feels like a, a deep darkness, the Lord remembers and he keeps his promises. We get to remember that every year this time, Isaiah 9, 2, and then verses 6 through 7, the people who walked in darkness, they have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Why? Verse 6, for to us a child is born, the Lord has visited his people. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Imagine that promise that Elizabeth and Zechariah knew is Herod reigned. You gotta, that's, that's why Zechariah is singing. It, it, it says prophecy, it says Zechariah's prophecy in a little subscript above your Bible, which is, is not 
part of the Bible, that's the interpreter's way of trying to give you handles of where it's going. But the way it's constructed is this is a song. He's singing. What I try to do here is we dive into it is to try to answer the question that's asked in, um, in verse 66. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? This child that was born named John, this child of promise that was given to Elizabeth and, and Zechariah is, he, is the angel Gabriel came and said, you're going to have a baby boy and you're going to name him John. And so this question, it's a good question. What will this child be? We see the clearest answer starting in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because, isn't that an incredible phrase? Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Everything that comes before verse 76, it's, it's all about Jesus. And everything that comes six, 76 or 79 is about John pointing to Jesus. John's job, John's call on his life, the reason he exists is to point people to Christ. Prepare his way, 76, give knowledge, 77, to give light. Verse 79, to guide our feet, 79. If you were here a few weeks ago, I made a statement that John, um, who also became the known, like in our kind of common language, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, is that he was a preacher with one sermon. He went into the community, and his job was to prepare hearts and to prepare people for, for Christ. And so he came and said, you need, you need to repent. And so I said, you, you need to turn. You need to get ready to kind of till the soil. And so John is a preacher with one sermon, and, and I said his sermon was repent. Let me amend that. John is a preacher with one sermon, and it's Jesus. It's all he was about. Everything in his life, and the idea of repenting is to get people to turn back to him so they might meet this one that can forgive sins, this one that can redeem, this one that can shine light into the shadowlands. Years ago, I heard this story. It was some Christian conference down in the south, and um, you know, a couple thousand people in this big auditorium, and the, the stage is, 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 there's no one on stage you know, band finish, they go off, and there's, there's a speaker that comes up, very, very common, very standard. If you've been in any of these conferences, this is the, the way it works. And this, this man comes out, and he just stands, stands on the edge of the stage. It's just quiet. And he just looks around the room. He's just quiet. For minutes. He's just quiet. And then all of a sudden, all he does, he just, he just shouts, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And he just, he's screaming the name of Christ. He's shouting, he's, exalt, he's not screaming, he's exalting the name of Christ. He is magnifying the name of Christ. And, and after doing this for probably what felt uncomfortable for the room, as he's weeping and rejoicing and jumping, he just looks at me and says, I've never gotten to do that before. I'm in a country where it's illegal to be a Christian. I've never gotten to be as loud about the king that I love as I was right now. And it just is this consumed with Christ. That's John. Preacher with one sermon, Jesus. 
There's this wonderful scene that happens in, in another account of Christ's life in John chapter 3. John the Baptist, he was, he was baptizing people and he, had, he was considered a rabbi and so he had disciples around him. And he was known. People were coming out to him in the wilderness. Kind of a wild figure, but people are coming out to him and they're, God's doing something, Spirit's doing something. And, and then Jesus' uh, reputation grew. People began to know who Christ is and what was happening is people were going from being baptized by John and they're now going after Christ and they're being baptized and John's buddies, his disciples come up and say, hey, the one that we baptized, the one that, that, like, like, the one that you know, that you were like the leader, you were the guy, and now they're leaving you and they're going to Christ and they're distressed by this. And John looks at me and says, oh, how can I not rejoice in this? I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. I'm not the groom. I'm the friend. I can't, I, I'm so excited about this. And then this beautiful, this, this beautiful line where he, he, he just says, he says, I am not the Christ. And that's what Zechariah's song is saying. There's this difference that happens. It says, now you, my son, will be a prophet of the most high. You're not the most high. Your whole life is to point to the most high. He must increase. But I must decrease. All John is doing in his own way is standing on a stage saying, Jesus, 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 Jesus. April 1944, two Jewish prisoners escaped from Auschwitz. They had one motive. They wanted to warn the world what was really happening and what was being dubbed and kind of phrased and spun as resettlement camps. Walter Rosenberg, 19, and Fred Wetzler, 25. They had to cross mountains and, and rivers and these really dense forests that were occupied by, by Nazis in Poland until they could get back to their home country of Slovakia. It's a really incredible story. It took them 11 days as they only traveled at night. They had no compasses. They had no maps. And they finally made it back with this one job, this one motive, we need to warn the world of what's happening so that we can, can save people. And so they, they got back to, it kind of ended up being like a safe house and they were hidden and people began to come in and, and interview them and in some of their words also interrogate them to, to verify, is this true? Which, you know, maybe that's okay. And it, and it proved trustworthy. I mean, the data, the details, everything they were saying proved so true. And so then the, at that point, then they would hand them to somebody else, another committee, another group of people, and they would go through this process. And, and, and they're, they're trying to verify, you know, if we give the benefit of the doubt, but they were, they were so slow. It was, they came, they had just escaped. They're telling exactly what's happening. And all the while, people are still dying. And people were slow. There was like an indifference with some people to actually act upon the information that they were saying. The same thing can happen to us. Rescue is proclaimed. This is the day of salvation. Jesus, 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 the one who can forgive your sins. Don't miss this Advent season to let Christ get so dazzling in your sight that you're apathetic or indifferent. Oh, may it not happen for me. May it not happen for you. If you're here and you are a non-Christian, here's my... My, um, my invitation to you, just humbly, before, humbly go before God and say, would you prepare my heart for Christ? There's nothing I can say, there's nothing anyone can say that's gonna logic you into this, but a bent heart before Christ. And he might visit you and make Jesus dazzling. If you're a Christian, 
It's the same invitation. Humbly go before God. Say, would you prepare my heart for Christ? What a tragedy if we miss him. You know why? Let's look at the rest of Zechariah's song. In the original language, this, this song that, that Zechariah sings is actually just one long sentence. There's no breaks in it. And the, the idea with that is that he, the way it's composed is to keep it all connected together, to not, to not separate it. It's like what, what Zechariah is doing is building one thing after the next, after the next, after the next. Say, Jesus is amazing. Look at, look at this part of Jesus. Look at this part of Jesus. Look at the one who has visited us. Look at all that he has, has done. I'll just quickly go through some of the, some of the phrases and, and, and aspects of this text. This raised up horn of salvation. The, the horn like, a, like an animal, like a, like a ram, like strength. Saying he is a strong savior. From the house of David saying he is the long awaited Messiah king. The one that, the king to end all kings. The king of kings. We talked about this a lot um, a few weeks ago. That we should be saved from our enemies. He's a deliverer. He's a strong savior, Messiah king, deliverer, and to show the mercy that was, was promised. And then there's this little phrase, to Abraham our father. What, what, what's happening here is Zechariah is weaving together. He's saying he is the fulfillment of the promise of God to bless. What Zechariah is doing is pulling together everything we most deeply need and saying they are all found in Jesus. He's it. He's drawing together all the great promises and longings and pledges that God has made in the Old Testament, the two, first two-thirds of the Bible, this, this account which, which uh, Alistair Begg would say. It's, it's like the whole thing's an advent calendar. It's all pointing towards Christ. The every, everything is summed up in Christ. His song is, is singing about um, the way 2 Corinthians makes plain and clear. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all of the promises of God find their yes in him, speaking of Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Strong Savior, deliverer, fulfillment of every good promise, Jesus. Now, if you follow the song all the way to verses 74 and 75, you see the, the why. Why or, the, or like the, the outcome, the, 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 the reason the Lord visited his people in some ways, we could say this is the meaning of Christmas, that we might enter into this, verses 74 and 5, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all days, or days of days, forever. That's the outcome. You know, what enemies? We might ask that question, what enemies? And, and Zechariah for sure may have had uh, Rome in mind. They were the ones that had set up a puppet king and Herod, for sure. Um, but, he, but I think he's going further. We have more enemies than that. And as a priest, Zechariah knew that. You know, no doubt there are then and now there are leaders and people that, that hate and dislike Christians and dislike Christ and, re- and dislike the gospel, people that oppose it. And they're included in this, but I think he's talking about what's known in the, the Bible as the three great enemies that we see all over the Bible and we actually begin to see in this text. Sin, the enemy of sin, the enemy of death, and the enemy of the devil. See, we don't just have Herods that we fear. We fear the great enemy. In the Bible, he's called the adversary, the accuser, the tempter. 
the liar. He comes like a thief to, to steal. We live in the ever-present, apart from a vantage towards Christ, this ever-present threat of, of death, the shadow. And we have the enemy of sin. He came to forgive us from our sins. This enemy of sin that, that stains us before a holy God, that wreaks havoc in our lives, with our families and our friends and our communities, and, and it piles on. It, it's like the tendency is just to pile on the sense of guilt. Like I've done wrong. How could I ever be free? Just unraveling our peace. But, but the Lord has visited. The Lord has visited the strong Savior, Messiah, King, Deliverer, and God's yes to every good promise has visited. That's the hope of, of this song. That's the, the hope is that every, every frightening thing, every scary thing, every hard thing, every troubling thing, the Lord has, has visited so that we could do what this text says, that we might be able to live without fear. We might have a peace that settles in in the shadow lands. It's like we can live with brightness in the shadows. How, how do we get, how do we live without fear? We see a clue to it in, in the word in verse 68, the word redeemed. The word redeemed means to save it a cost. It means to purchase another's freedom at a very high price. This is a gospel word. This is a good news word. This is a word, and what Christ did to, to come and redeemed is that Christ came. He visited his people. He came and inhabited our world. He wrapped himself in flesh to, to live the way we were meant to live, and yet we failed to live. And then to ransom us, to, to purchase us, to liberate us, he went to a cross where he, he died in our place, that he took the curse, he became our guilt, he, be, he wore our, our shame that we might be set free, to give himself as a substitute for forgiveness. There's a song and it says this, he paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. He redeemed us, he, he purchased us out of it. And then the story of the gospel completed that he lived the life we were meant to live. He died the death that we deserved. And then he went to a tomb where three days later he rose victoriously. And in his resurrection, he says, I've defeated death. I've paid for sin. And I will do away with the evil one. I will conquer over all the enemies. Hate won't win. Sin won't win. Death won't win. The devil won't win. And one day he's coming back to do away with the shadows forever. All of our lives are actually Advent. The last prayer of the Bible is an Advent prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. Because we know when he comes back, we get to live this way without fear. I intentionally stopped Longfellow's poem early. Um, let me remind you where. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. But he kept going. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's what Advent does for us. It helps us not stop. There's another word coming. Despair doesn't have the last word. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. He visits his people. Hate may be strong, but it's not stronger than our Savior. Our sin may be deep, but his mercy is more. 
How can we live without guilt in life? Like, how can we actually do that? Because Christ was condemned in our place. There's no, there's no accusations coming, ever. No fear in death. Why? Christ has conquered it. He's, he's defanged it. He's transformed it. George Herbert says it like this. He says, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel makes him just a gardener. I love that, that picture. One day, because of what Christ has done, as we're planted in earth, we will be raised to newness of life that will be more glorious than you or I could possibly imagine. And the devil, he won't be there. Amen? He's done. His days are numbered. No longer able to discourage and to shame and accuse and to tempt and to lie and to derail. We will serve without fear because Jesus is our holiness and our righteousness. I'll end quickly with this, but there's one more part of the passage, really important part that I left out, and it's, it's this unusual scene of a baby boy receiving a name. If you go back in Luke 1, what you find out is that Zachariah was told this promise that you will have a son, and then he questions, the, he says, how's this guy, like, pro- basically prove it to me. And so as part of the, the consequence of his disbelief, um, the angel tells Zechariah, you will not be able to speak uh, until all these things come to pass. And if you look at the text of the detail, it's actually probably he wasn't able to speak and he also wasn't able to hear. And that he lived in silence for all of these months. And, and I get that from they're making signs to him. They're trying to explain, he's at this scene and he, he doesn't just grab the, the writing tablet right away. He doesn't just say, no, no, his name is John. They're all talking, he's just watching commotion. Eventually he figures out what's going on and he grabs this tablet and he says, his name is John. Why did it matter so much? It was tradition. You would name the eldest son after the, the father. That was tradition. I mean, this broke, there's so many social conventions, but it really mattered. Why does it matter that his name is John? Because John's name summarizes how redemption and salvation and defeat of every enemy happens and why every promise is kept and why it's not about us, but it's all about God and how there can be brightness for us even in shadows. John's name means this. God is gracious. The proclaimer of Christ was sent. God is gracious. He hasn't forgotten. He hasn't, for, he, hasn't, he hasn't left. He knows, he sees, he remembers. And he's acting out of his tender mercy, not because of what we do or have earned, but because God is gracious. And I can't remember this last week when this landed on me, but you can tell the story of Luke 1 actually through the names. Zechariah, Elizabeth, John, Jesus. God remembers Zechariah, his promises, Elizabeth, because God is gracious, John, to save Jesus. God remembers his promises because God is gracious to save. I left out one more important name, the name Mary, the mother of Jesus. You know what her name means? Beloved. So let me put them all together. God remembers his promises because God is gracious to save his beloved. The way of peace, it is guaranteed by the tender mercy and grace of the strong Savior King who is God's yes to every good promise and gives his life for his beloved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you make this text sing to us? May we even hear the melody line of Zechariah. 
that we would, by your grace, walk in the path um, that, God, you are real, and God, you are alive, and Christ, you are sufficient. The shadows can get so in front of us that we lose sight of who Christ is. So would you use this season to continue to pierce into it, to, to, to kind of build this, this, this tension and this excitement for the birth of Christ that we might celebrate uninhibited, that we might be able to live without fear before you because Christ is our righteousness, because Christ took our condemnation, because Christ conquers our enemies, because Christ is enough. You do it all by your grace because of your tender mercy. What good news that we don't have to earn. We just get to receive what Christ has earned. Holy Spirit, lift him up. In Jesus' name, amen.